0: Would you pray with me? Risen Lord, as we come to contemplate the mystery of your resurrection and all that it means for us, give us grace now that your words might sink into our hearts and change us. In the name of the Christ, amen. All right, well, so you might know that we are in the season of Easter. Last week was Easter Sunday, but in the calendar of the church, Easter is a season. It's seven weeks long and it goes until Pentecost, which is our next major feast day. It's a season of celebrating resurrection. N.T. Wright, the great uh, New Testament scholar, British New Testament scholar, and bishop, former bishop of Durham Cathedral, said we ought to be drinking champagne every day in the whole season of Easter to celebrate this mighty resurrection of the Lord. It's a season of celebrating. We've been through the season of fasting and Lent. And now the Lord's resurrection is here. This is because Jesus' resurrection from the grave has far-reaching implications for us and for the entire world. You heard this in this beautiful line from 1 Peter that Nikki read for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it goes on, but did you hear that? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, you and I have been caused to be born again to a new and living hope. That is the mechanism of your and my redemption, His mighty resurrection. And it changes everything. But like the dove going out from the ark, which has to go out a couple times before things are ready, it takes some time. What we're going to see as we look at the gospel passage in just a second is that we, the church, are given an apostolic mission to proclaim Jesus to the world, to embody Jesus' presence in the world. This is probably not news for you if you've been in the church for a moment. But our weakness in the midst of that mission has to be deliberately faced and named in Jesus' presence. I think that's what we'll see with Thomas. Thomas let's look at the gospel. In the first few verses of John chapter 20, this is like John's first ending. There's a whole another chapter that's like an even better, maybe not better, but another ending. The first few verses here, we see Jesus risen and appearing for the first time to the, well, I was going to say the 11 disciples, except we know that Thomas is not there. Judas has already removed himself from the equation. There's 10 disciples, perhaps others gathered together Jesus appears to them and he gets ready to send them on a mission. They're afraid. The doors are locked, but they're gathered together. What else would you do? They're there and they're afraid, and Jesus comes and he says to them, as we heard three times already in our reading, peace. They may lack assurance. John tells us they're afraid, the doors are locked. They don't appear to be ready to go out into the world to proclaim his kingdom. And they don't seem to have received the words of Mary Magdalene, who in a few verses earlier has come to say that she has seen the risen Lord. So Jesus has to show them his hands and his side to give evidence of the fact that he really is alive, that it's not a ghost. Multiple times in the gospel tradition, the disciples see Jesus and they think, maybe it's a ghost. No, it's the real risen Lord. And after he shows them his body, he commissions them. He says several things that all envision their ministry in the church. Just briefly, he says this, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. In the same way the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Some of you might know that the word apostle is really just the noun form of the Greek verb to send, to send out, apostello. The church is on an apostolic mission, and what it's going to do is going to be just like Jesus in the world, which is a high calling, and it is a calling to suffer. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven, which makes many of us uncomfortable. In its best, the church has struggled to remember throughout its history that it is not the church or its ministers who forgive sins, but it is the Lord God only who forgives sins. And yet, strangely, God has given to the church the challenge and the calling of speaking to the world and to one another the forgiveness of God. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. Unlike the third evangelist, unlike Luke, John does not write a second book to tell us about the life of the church, but he does give us what we could call a Johannine Pentecost, a moment when the disciples, after the Lord has risen, receive the Holy Spirit. They're being empowered. And all this suggests that the church actually matters. That what these fearful, hidden men are going to do in the world, in their persons, actually matters. They're being equipped for a mission. We hear this, echo, like an echo of this, at the end of our passage Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Jesus is already. Anticipating the future mission in which these witnesses of Jesus will go out into the world and will speak on his behalf to others who will believe. And Jesus pronounces over you and me who have believed a blessing. But the story doesn't look at this point like one of power and victory, it looks like weakness and hiding. And in fact, this is exemplified in the person of Thomas. Thomas isn't there. But he has been with Jesus. He's been with Jesus throughout the course of his ministry. He's heard Jesus' teaching. He's heard Jesus' predictions in John, destroy this temple, referring to his body, and I will raise it in three days. He's seen Jesus call Lazarus out of the tomb. He is going to be a witness to others of what the Lord can do in their lives, but here he is a witness of his own doubt. It's an important, maybe we say this this enough here, maybe we don't. What does it mean that there is a doubter in the midst of the apostles? What does it mean that there is somebody who has multiple times encountered those who have proclaimed the truth to him, and yet has been unable to receive it and appropriate it? Brothers and sisters, that story is right here in the midst of the church. It's not a story about those people out there. It's a story about what it's like in the life of faith here. It's not a glorified and wonderful thing to celebrate, it's a thing to be honest about and to enter into. In verse 24, I don't know if you're looking along with you, but you can see that the words are that Thomas was not with them when Jesus came. Why do you think he wasn't there? Maybe he was like you, trying to find parking this morning, he couldn't get there in time. Thanks for the polite chuckle. Um... We're not told often in the biblical narratives why, what, what's going on within somebody, the backstory. We don't know if he had a responsibility, if he had up a, picked up a part-time job in Jerusalem. We don't know where he is or why he's not there. We're told these words, he was not with them. And it turns out once he hears the message that they have to say, he's still not with them, even though he shows up. He can't get on board with what they have said. That they have seen. It reminds me of a scene earlier when Jesus is about to go raise Lazarus from the dead. People call from consent from another town, and they say, "Hey, Lord, the one that you love is sick. He's about to die. Come and heal him." And Jesus purposefully delays. Father Ryan preached on this a few weeks ago. He purposefully delays, and the disciples have some conversation with him. And eventually, Jesus says, "Look, here's what's going to happen. Lazarus has actually died." And I'm going there to raise him from the dead so that you might believe. And you would think the lights would be on for a moment, or that you might at least trust what Jesus said. But some person speaks up in the midst. It's Thomas. And he says, Well, let's go so that we can die along with him. He's afraid that Jesus is going to be killed by those who are close to Jerusalem, who have gathered around where Lazarus has died. He doesn't believe Jesus in John 11, and he doesn't appear to believe in John 20. Why is this, do you think? We don't know. Why do you hesitate to believe? Why does anyone? It's a hard sell a little bit, The message is that the man who died three days ago is alive again. Do you want to be taken in by somebody's uh, overexcited um, positivity? We live in a time in which, to avoid credulity and to avoid being taken in, we are prone to cynicism or at least to doubt, a self protective doubt. What is it that you find too hard to believe? And what do we do with the fact that we all find some things hard to believe and get on board with? Maybe in a moment when we can read the Creed and confess it together, you won't find it difficult to name some of those things, or maybe you will. Maybe there are things in your life that you find hard to believe. I am beloved by my Father in heaven. I'm likable. I have some purpose here in this community. What do we do with our doubt? Well, there's one thing that Thomas does. Do you notice it? He does one thing in the whole narrative at this point. He vocalizes his limitations. Unless I see the mark of the nails, unless I place my finger in the mark of the nails, place my hand in his side, I will not believe. He may not see it this way, but he is naming his weakness And this vulnerability, my friends, is the gateway to his healing. It doesn't actually mean that his demands are correct. The other disciples just were shown Jesus' hands inside. Thomas says, I have to actually put my finger all the way in there. Which is awfully grotesque if you think about it for a moment. It's a little bit boundary violating. He might be saying that I need a special kind of proof and experience that everybody else hasn't had, but that I think that I am going to need. Perhaps it's asking too much. But he's honest about where he is. And this honesty singles him out in the community of the other disciples. There's ten of them and one of him. And he says, I'm not able to believe. And for eight days, that's the story. A week of sitting... Dejected, and somehow he's not. Somehow he doesn't leave the community, but it's not. A, it's not a comfortable moment. He's vulnerable. Okay, so then Jesus shows up, and pay attention to what Jesus does and does not do. He says again this thing we've been hearing over and over: "Peace to you." And then he turns to Thomas, and he doesn't have a rebuke. He says this: "Bring your finger." It's, I read reading this in the Greek. Bring your finger. Bring it over here. Bring your hand. Put it right here. Thomas' unbelief brings into the open a way that makes Thomas vulnerable to further critique from the disciples, but it provides the terms of Jesus' engagement with him. I've got to put my finger there and my hand there. Jesus says... Okay, come. And this is what leads to his transformation, my Lord and my God. It's remarkable that your Savior is not one who says, hold on a second, Thomas, who do you think you are? That you might touch, you unbelieving person might touch my glorified body. He condescends, says, come, come close. And this makes all the difference for Thomas. We don't hear of any unbelief at this point. We don't hear much until the later tradition that Thomas travels farther than any other apostle to carry the message of the gospel. All the way, if the stories are true, to India. I don't know if that's true or not. But it's a remarkable story. There are Christians early in India calling themselves the disciples of Thomas. Imagine that there were a different story. Imagine that instead of naming his Difficulty and belief. Thomas just kept silent, like some of us are prone to do. He finds the ten, they say, We've seen the Lord. And he says, Okay. And he just sits down with them and does whatever they do for eight days. There's no need for a dialogue with Jesus at this point. His unbelief, his self-protection remains buried. Can you think of leaders in the church or in the world who have buried their difficulties for time, who have hidden their skeletons until they eventually come out? Some of them make the news. Jesus said, Nothing is hidden that will not be brought to the light. Whoever has or do, whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. The problem that's inside of Thomas, Thomas brings out in the presence of his friends, and in the presence of Jesus, and that is transformative. So, where does that leave you and me? As you contemplate the Easter message of your redemption and restoration, where do you know doubt and fear? Where do you have a sentence that begins with, unless I do this? I'm not really going to be there. Unless I can handle my anxiety, I really won't know peace. Unless fill in the blank. In a moment, we're going to move to our time of prayer, the sharing of the peace, and to the Lord's table, where we take his broken body in our hands. And so I just want you to use this time to give voice to your own weakness. When Jesus shows us His wounded body, and when we take in a moment His body in our hands, we are looking in a mirror. For the grace of the Incarnation and the cross, our wounds have become His wounds. And through His resurrection, His wounds have become our life. We, brothers and sisters, are the wounded body of Christ. And if this means that we need to name our wounds and our woundedness, it also means that we must learn to honor the wounds of others. This week, you're going to see a brother or sister, someone perhaps you live with in their woundedness. And the thing about a wound is it can become inflamed and infected. It can become angry. And your calling and my calling is to care. Remember the Lord's tenderness to Thomas, not with rebuke, but with welcome in his own vulnerability. See my hands. Come touch my wounds. As the Father has sent Jesus in weakness and in woundedness, he sends us, and this is the source of our power in life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.